0: Well, once again, my name is James, and it's my privilege to lead us this morning in the study of God's Word. So uh, we've been going through the book of Exodus, so if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. If you grabbed a Bible from in front of you, that will be on page 48. We're going to be looking at chapter 5 and chapter 6 today. And as you guys turn there, uh, let me pray for us. So Father, we thank you for this time together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We see it in all kinds of ways. And we just ask that in this moment that you'd help us to have ears to hear and hearts that are soft to receive this message. Father, we thank you again in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, a friend of mine sent me a video online. And he told me to watch this video. And he told me that no matter how hard I tried, I wouldn't be able to figure this video out. Uh, The video was an awareness test. and, And I was a little bit offended by my friend's comments, but I thought, okay, I'll give this a try, see how well I do. So I clicked on the link and a video came up and the video started with two basketball teams standing in front of the camera. Uh, One basketball team was wearing white uniforms and the second basketball team was wearing black uniforms. And a voice came on the screen, the voice said, count how many times the white basketball team passes the ball amongst themselves. So didn't have to worry about the black basketball team, just the one in white how many times they pass the ball back and forth between themselves. After the voice said this, uh, the people started moving around and passing the basketballs quite rapidly. And so there's kind of this chaos and mayhem that ensues. They're, they're kind of in and amongst themselves, passing the basketball back and forth. And so I start counting right away, as, as best as I'm able to, how many times they pass back and forth. And as I'm watching, I can tell that there's some points where they're trying to trick you a little bit, right? They'll, they'll do a fake pass or pass two times really quickly. Uh, and so the video kind of fades to black, and I've counted 13 passes in total. And the voice comes on the screen. The voice says, did you count all 13 passes that were made by the white team? And I'm thinking to myself, yes, I did. This is, this is pretty easy, actually. And I'm thinking to myself, why did my friend think that this was so difficult to do? Why did they think I would fail? Well, the voice continued, and he said, did you see all 13 passes that were made? And I'm thinking, yes. And he says, but more importantly, did you see the moonwalking bear? And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is this guy talking about? And sure enough, I go back, I rewind the video, I start it again. And in the middle of all the people passing the balls around, a person dressed in a bear suit came on the screen, walked to the middle of everything that was happening, started doing some crazy dance moves, And walked off the screen. And I didn't see it at all. And so my friend was right. I completely failed this awareness test, even though I thought I did amazing. You see, what happened was I was so focused on one specific thing that I was completely blind to other things that were going on. I completely missed the big picture of what was happening. And the reason I say this is because this morning we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 6. At least the majority of those chapters. And one of the things that you might be thinking is, isn't that a lot of text to cover in one sermon? And the reason you'd be thinking that is because it is a lot of text to cover in one sermon. But I'm actually excited for it. And here's why. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we can kind of make the mistake that I made during that awareness test. We can kind of focus in so specifically on either one verse or a phrase or a a word in Scripture that we kind of lose sight of the bigger picture of what's going on. This summer, we're working through the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus because we want to make sure that we see the big picture of what God's doing amongst his people, rescuing them from the land of Egypt back in the Exodus. And so in order to make sure we get the full story, we actually need to cover a lot of text. And so that's why we have our work cut out for us today. Now, on top of that, we want to make sure that we don't skip over important things by going too quickly. And so we really need to make sure we're working hard this morning. So with that said... Let's dive right into the first verse of Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Okay, we're going to pause here for a second because the the verse that we just read starts out by saying afterward. And that kind of tells us that what we're about to read only makes sense if we know the story that comes before it. It only makes sense in light of the context of what's come before. And so what we're going to do right now is just kind of stop and recap a little bit of the things that have led up to this moment where Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh. We'll start kind of big picture and then work our way in from there. And so big picture, we know that God has made a promise to a man named Israel. He said to Israel that he's going to have many descendants and those descendants will become a great nation. And he's also told Israel that those descendants will live in a land that God has promised to them. We see these promises in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11 and 12. God also said to Israel, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. And so God makes this promise to a man named Israel. And when the book of Exodus starts... We see that Israel's descendants have become a great nation. They've become very numerous. But we also see that they're living in the land of Egypt as slaves, still waiting for God to rescue them and bring them to the promised land. That's kind of the big picture. Moving in a bit more specifically, we've been just introduced to a man named Moses. Now you probably know something about Moses, and we actually have just the highlights of his life recorded for us. In, in chapter 2 alone, we actually cover almost 80 years, and we learn that. First of all, Moses was born uh, in in tumultuous times, and he was rescued as a baby, rescued from Pharaoh. We learn that he actually grew up in Pharaoh's household. We learn that at age 40, he fled from Egypt to the wilderness because of something he had done. And we learn that he spent most of the rest of his adult life tending sheep in the wilderness. That's all in chapter 2. We learn a lot of stuff about Moses. In chapter 3 and 4, our attention gets even narrower, and we spend a lot of time hearing about one event— that changes the trajectory and purpose of Moses' life from then on after that. Uh, You probably know it as the story of Moses in the burning bush. And it's a well-known story. Moses is tending sheep and he sees a bush that's on fire, but not being consumed, not being burnt up. And so he, he investigates further and very soon he realizes that he's actually in the presence of God. And God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cries out to me. And I've actually come to rescue them. And I'm going to use you to be the agent through whom I do this. Uh, God says in 3 verse 8, I have come down to deliver my people out of the hand of the Egyptians. And two verses later in 3 verse 10, he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Uh, It's this incredible scene. And you would think that, you know, after God showed up in a burning bush and spoke audibly to Moses, you would think that would be enough for Moses to say, okay, let's do this. I'm, I'm fully convinced. Uh, but instead of a courageous Moses, Moses, we see a Moses who's full of fears and doubts and insecurities. And, and actually mo- most of the chapter three and four from this point on will be God actually reassuring Moses that he is, is who he says he is and he will do what he said he will do. Uh, we see this all throughout the rest of the chapters three and four. Uh, and So at 3 verse 13, Moses says to God, if the people ask me what your name is, what shall I tell them? Uh, Moses is saying, you know, if I, if I show up and say God has spoken to me and they ask what's God's name, I, I don't even know what I'd say. And God takes Moses concerning, he actually reassures Moses by giving him the special name that he, he has. In, in 4 verse 1, Moses complains further, he says, the people won't believe me when I, when I share this message with them. They're just going to think I'm crazy. They'll think I'm, I'm making things up. The people won't believe me. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to give you some powerful signs to confirm that this message is from me. And so at God's command, Moses throws his staff onto the ground and immediately it becomes a serpent. Uh, and Moses is freaked out by this. And God says, Moses, pick up this, this, uh, the serpent by its tail. And Moses does this and becomes a staff again. Uh, A little bit later, God says to Moses, Moses, reach your hand into your garment. And Moses does so. And he pulls it out and it's full of leprosy. Terrible skin disease. God tells Moses to repeat that process and he pulls it out again and it's completely healed. Uh, God says, Moses, if you're worried that the people don't believe you, uh, do these signs and they're sure to believe you. Uh, But Moses still isn't convinced. He actually says this in 4 verse 10. He says, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses is saying, God, I'm not a good public speaker. I, don't, I, I can't speak very well. And God says to Moses, Moses, who do you think gave you your mouth to speak? Moses, I'm the one who created you. I gave you a mouth. I, I told you I'm going to be speaking through you, giving you the words to say, you can do this, Moses. Moses still has his doubts. So and he, he continues to complain and God says, you know what? I'm going to send Aaron, your brother, and he's going to speak for you. But you need to go to Egypt to do this thing. And so we see reassurance after reassurance from God that this is his plan and these things are going to happen as he says they will. Well, it's what you might call a mountaintop experience, right? Literally, it took place on a mountain. So in that sense, it is a mountaintop experience. But also figuratively, it's a mountaintop experience because Moses has had this encounter with God that has really changed his life. Uh, God has reassured him time and time again that this is his plan and it's going to be accomplished. And, and so it's after this mountaintop experience that Moses returns to Egypt to meet with the people of Israel. Uh, I'm sure he had a lot of anticipation about what, how they would receive him, what they would say. Uh, it actually turns out to be a really positive thing. Look at chapter 4, verse 29, if you have it there. It says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had given Moses to speak and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And so this sets the direct context for what we're about to read. And if you think about it, it's pretty incredible. God has made a promise to Israel. He's come down to rescue his people. He said, Moses, I'm going to use you to do it. Moses has has doubted but been reassured, and then he returns to his people, and everybody's excited, everyone believes Moses, they worship God together, and it's right after these things happen that Moses goes to speak to Pharaoh. I don't know about you, but it sounds like something incredible is about to happen. So let's keep reading to find out. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. You can hear the confidence in their voices. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Therefore they cried, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. We're going to stop right there for a moment. I think what we just read should be very surprising to us the first time that we read it. Now, of course, we have chapter titles, so maybe you saw Making Bricks Without Straw, or maybe you knew the story before. But, But I think the first time you read this, this is supposed to be very surprising to you. I mean, think about the context of what we just read, right? God's made these promises. He's appeared to Moses. He said, Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses goes and does exactly what God tells him. And yet Pharaoh says no. And things actually go from bad to worse for God's people. I don't think anybody was expecting this. Not even the skeptics. I mean, I imagine when Moses came to the people and told them that he was going to deliver them from slavery, I imagine there might have been some skeptics. We don't read about them, but I imagine some people might have thought, you know what, Moses, we'll believe it when we see it. Kind of, We've been slaves for a long time. I kind of doubt it, but we'll see what can happen. Uh, I imagine even the skeptics, though, they probably thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, Moses, give it a shot. It's not like things can get any worse for us. We're already slaves. We're already being oppressed. You know, Go for it. What's the worst that can happen? Uh, well, they actually find out that things can get a lot worse. Uh, even if you've never read the book of Exodus before, chances are you've heard the phrase uh, making bricks without straw. It's kind of become synonymous with the worst kind of oppression to, be, to, to say making bricks without straw because up until this point, the, the people of Israel were being oppressed. They were being forced to make bricks, uh, but straw was provided for them. So it was, a, it was a terrible situation, but at least they had straw provided for them. Now Pharaoh's saying, you guys are still going to make the same number of bricks, But you're going to do it finding your own straw. We're not going to provide that for you anymore. Uh, So a terrible situation gets several times worse because now their work is multiplied exponentially. And they're still required to make the same number of bricks. And just in case anyone says, you know, maybe this is just a coincidence. You know, Pharaoh's a terrible person. Maybe it just so happens that Moses, you know, talked to him the same day he was already going to do this. No, it, it, we see in the text that this is explicitly linked to what Moses has said to Pharaoh, uh, in chapter five, verse eight. Pharaoh says, "They are idle; therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God.'" Uh, the word "idle" there is not the same word for idols as, as in idolatry, but it's it's basically saying the people are lazy; they're idle; they don't do very much. And, and so, basically, Pharaoh saying to Moses, Moses, if, if you have so much time on your hands that you're planning this journey into the wilderness obviously I haven't given you enough work to do. He's almost being a bit sarcastic. He's saying, Moses, if you have so much spare time that you're looking for something to do, I'll give you something to do that's going to take quite a bit of your time. Uh, So this is directly related to Moses' request. Moses says, can we go and sacrifice? Pharaoh says, actually, if you have so much time to do that, i got something better for you to do. Well, it's one thing to, to make a command. It's another for that to be carried out. And So let's keep reading to see what happens in verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task, each day. So here we see that Pharaoh's command is is carried out to the letter. And we see kind of the power structures of Egypt. And so Pharaoh gives this command to the Egyptian taskmasters and they give it to the foremen of the people of Israel who are leaders kind of from within their own people and the foremen talk to the people and say this is, this is what's happening and what we see here is no matter who appeals to Pharaoh no matter who protests this law it's clear that this is happening whether people like it or not and so the foremen come in and they get an audience with Pharaoh and they have these plans to say you know Pharaoh this is ridiculous There's this is crazy you can't treat us this way And Pharaoh says, actually, yes, I can, off you go. And they they realize it says uh, that they were in trouble. It's a bit of an understatement, but they they at least realize that this is a kind of hopeless situation and nothing that they can do is changing it. Well, after this this meeting, they they run into some people that they know and, and we'll read about this in verse 20. It says, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, it doesn't take a literature professor to kind of notice some of the contrast here between the first time Moses met the people and this time right here. Right? The first time Moses met with the people, he did the signs that God had given him. It says the people believed, they bowed down and worshiped God, and it was a really positive experience. Now in this meeting, instead of worshiping God, the people are calling God to judge Moses and Aaron for what they've done. Uh, They think that they're crazy or maybe even cruel. And they just think, since you guys came, nothing good has happened. And basically Pharaoh has now got a sword in his hand to kill us. Uh, They they don't understand at all why Moses has come. And and frankly, they don't want anything to do with him. Now it's interesting. We don't actually see how Moses responds to the people. Uh, we don't know if he said something in his defense or, or if he's like, yeah, this is crazy. We don't know what Moses said to the people, if he said anything at all. Uh, but what we do see is, God, is Moses crying out to God. We read this in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. If you have an outline, your outline says God's ways are higher than our ways. Uh, This is a familiar phrase to a lot of us. I took it from Isaiah chapter 55 verse 9 where the Lord says this. He says, For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What this is basically saying is that so often God works in ways that we would never expect and in ways that we would actually never choose for ourselves. Uh, Moses asks the question, why? He says, God, why have you done this? Why have you done evil to your people? Why did you even send me? It's a question that you only really ask if you're upset with the way things have gone. Right? Moses isn't saying, God, why did you send me? Why have you done this? And I'm really happy about it. No, Moses is saying, God, why have you done this? In other words, he's saying, God, if I was in your place, I, I never would have chosen things to happen this way. He's saying, God, if I was in charge, I would have done things a lot differently than you've done. What he's basically realizing is God's ways are are different than the ways that we would choose for ourselves oftentimes. Uh, A number of years ago, I read a book called Shadow of the Almighty. It was a really uh, impactful book on my life. I really, really loved it. It was about a young missionary named Jim Elliott. And it was written by his wife and and it was kind of highlighting his his life and his mission to a a people group in Ecuador. And so you kind of got some of the stories of him growing up and his initial calling to ministry. Uh, But then the book focused in large part about his calling to a certain people group in the jungles of Ecuador. uh, The Warani people group. And and it kind of highlights the years that it took for him to prepare to go to this people group. Uh, He had to first find out that it existed because it was very unknown and isolated He spent years learning the language of this people group. He spent years praying, uh, finding a pilot that would take him there, finding a team that could go with him. And it's just an awesome book. It highlights all these preparation and plans that he makes because of the call that God placed on his life to go to the jungles of Ecuador. Uh, You get to the end of the book and there's a bit of a surprise ending. Uh, The back cover offers this uh, summary and listen to how devastating this is. In 1956... Five courageous young missionaries were brutally speared to death in the Ecuadorian jungle by those they hoped to befriend. So after six years of prayer and preparation and sensing God's call to go to this people group, Jim and these four other missionaries, they make first contact with this people group and they end up being murdered by the people they came to help. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was writing that story, the ending would be a lot different, wouldn't it? Uh, if we were writing that story, the ending would be Jim and his friends. They make contact with this people group and they, they share the gospel in their own language. And the people hear, they repent of their sins. They turn to Jesus and there's just this big celebration and, and this big party. But that's not how the story goes. And, and, it, and it's things like this that make us wonder sometimes, why does God choose to let things happen the way that they happen? Uh, why does God work in ways that we would never choose for ourselves? And there's two answers for this, I think. The first is that simple, we, we don't always know the reasons why God does what he does. As the text we just read says, his, his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there's things that God's doing that we'll actually probably never know the reasons why he does. Uh, but the second answer is, is I think maybe even more helpful for us, is that whatever God does, he has a purpose and nothing is wasted. Uh, In the story of Jim Elliot, he he does end up being murdered by the people he came to help, but that's actually not the end of the story. You see, God was still at work, and Jim's relatives, those members of his family that also knew of his call to this people group, they actually went back to those people who had murdered Jim, and they shared the gospel, and people came to Christ. Just just think about how incredible that is that the people that murdered Jim Elliot, his family members went and, and preached to those same people. And there was reconciliation and forgiveness that happened that can never have happened apart from Jesus Christ. More than that, Jim Elliott's story and the story of those other missionaries became just this inspiration to a next generation of missionaries who would risk everything to take the gospel of Jesus Christ all around the world. And so God was at work. But his ways aren't often obvious right away for us. And imagine Moses and the people of Israel, they're looking at chapter, the events of chapter 5 and they're thinking, you know, God's plans must have failed. They're, they're thinking this must be a failure on God's plans. But what we're about to read shows us that this is not a failure of God's plans. Uh, God's actually doing something amazing. And we're about to see some of the reasons why these things have happened. Uh, let's keep reading at chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Your outline says this, God's ways show us our absolute dependence on him. Notice the first word God says to Moses. He says, now I will show you what I will do to Pharaoh. And so the question that comes from that is, well, why now? Why not before? Why couldn't God show Moses what he would do to Pharaoh at the beginning of the chapter? Why does he wait till now? And to answer this question, I'd like us to just imagine what it would have been like if Moses came back to Egypt, talked to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh let the people go right away. Imagine what that would be like. I'll help you by reading what that would sound like. Uh, Chapter 5, if that's how it went. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, okay, you can go. And so the people left, right? So that's not how chapter five goes, right? That was just to be very clear. That's not how chapter five goes. But imagine it did for a second. Imagine that's how the chapter went. Imagine how easy it would be to underestimate God's role in delivering his people. Like if that's how it went, you can come up with all kinds of other reasons why the people were allowed to go. You could say things like, wow, it turns out all this time, all we had to do was ask Pharaoh and he would have let us go. Or or maybe, you know, maybe maybe Pharaoh's not as harsh as we thought he was. Maybe he's actually kind of a nice guy and he's just misunderstood. Maybe that's why he let us go. Or or maybe Pharaoh noticed that there's so many of us that he was scared of us. and, And that's why he let us go because he didn't want to mess with us. Or maybe, you know, Moses, he's such a shrewd negotiator and he just said the right words and pushed the right buttons, and and that's why Pharaoh let us go. Right? If that's how the story happened, you could come up with all kinds of reasons and all kinds of factors as to why God's people were, were freed from Egypt. It'd be really easy to underestimate God's role in the Exodus if that's how the story went. But you see, what God's doing right now is he's canceling all those other explanations. He's saying, if this is something that's going to happen, if you guys are going to be rescued from Egypt, if, I'm going to, if you guys are going to come into the promised land that I gave to you, it's only going to be because I showed up powerfully and I did these things that nobody else could do. See, God's bringing his people to a place where they recognize their absolute dependence on him to act because if God doesn't act, if God doesn't show up powerfully, there's not a chance of their situation being changed. They need to realize their dependence on him. It was about eight years ago now. I was attending a church on Vancouver Island. And uh, I really liked the pastor there. He always gave great sermons. And there was one sermon that he gave that I'll never forget because it was so uh, memorable. And you'll understand why in just a moment. Uh, he was preaching on prayer. And, uh, and normally when you preach on prayer, you say something like, you know, prayer's is important. Uh, we don't pray enough. We should pray more. Here are some tips on prayer. Uh, but instead of doing that, he got up to the front of the pulpit and he said something like this. He said, well, you know what? Today we're going to talk about prayer. And he said, it's my estimation that probably most of us don't need to pray. And so we probably don't need to talk about it very much. right?" And everyone's just looking at themselves like, what is this guy talking about? And, and so I'm kind of in my head thinking, like, should I rush the stage? Should I tackle this guy? What should I do? And, and he continued. He said, no, let me, let, me, let me tell you what I mean. He said, um, you know, if you guys need food. You know, you go to the fridge or you go to a restaurant, you got food. He said, if you get sick, you go to a doctor or a specialist. He said, if you, uh, if you have emotional problems, you can go to a, a counselor or a psychiatrist. He says, if you, you, know, if you have any other kind of issues, you, you, you'll find ways to deal with them. He said, you guys probably don't actually need to pray because you got all this stuff taken care of yourselves. And at this point, everyone's just kind of like their brains are hurting because they're thinking, what is this guy doing? How, like, what is he trying to tell us here? What is this reverse psychology? And, and I think what he was trying to show us was that if you don't realize your dependence on God, prayer is going to be one of the first things to go in your life. Uh, because if you don't recognize your, your dependence on God for all these things we just talked about, why would you bother to pray for them? You see, see, so often in life, we can get to a place where we're just so comfortable and, and just start taking things for granted. And, and, and it gets harder and harder to pray because, well, we already have everything that we need anyways. See, what, what he was trying to do in, in a way that was quite memorable even to this day was just to show us that if, if you're going to pray, it's got to be because you actually recognize your dependence on God. And so he he said two things. He said, first of all, recognize that those things that you take for granted, those are actually things that you only have because you're absolutely dependent on God for. And he said, secondly, if you're still needing to see your dependence on God, he said, start doing things that unless God shows up and helps you to do, you're going to fail miserably. He said, start getting out of your comfort zone, start doing things, start sharing your faith, start doing things that unless God helps you to do them and shows up in your life, they're going to fail miserably. He said, you need to recognize your dependence on God. That's exactly what the events in chapter 5 are helping us to do. They're, they're, They're shaking the people awake and saying, you guys need to recognize your absolute dependence on God and that if God doesn't act, you guys are hopeless. He said, you need to get to that place. There's a great verse in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians where he speaks about this this very thing. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. Paul, Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that, was make a, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul is saying he was brought to a place where he despaired of life. He felt like he had received the sentence of death. And he said, I realized that that was so I wouldn't rely on myself anymore. He got to a point where he didn't have the option of relying on himself because he knew that he couldn't do it. He was forced to rely on the God who raises the dead. And so God's saying, it's only now that you have come to this place where you realize your dependence, that you're about to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. He's saying, now that you've seen the hopelessness of your situation, now that you've seen that Moses won't be able to do it, now that you've seen that Pharaoh is still powerful and stubborn, now that you've seen all these things, now I'll show you what I will do to Pharaoh. And let's keep reading to see what that is. Chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I hope you, I hope you heard how many times the Lord makes these I statements. It's, it's almost overwhelming how many times the word I shows up in, in these verses. Let me just read this list to you again just to give you a sense of how often it happens. He says, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I establish my covenant. I have heard. I have remembered my covenant. I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. I am the Lord. And so I hope you notice that what God is saying here is that he is about to act and it's going to be he alone who receives the glory for what he does. Uh, notice the tenses. He says, I am, which means this is who he is, always has been and always will be. He talks about what he's done in the past. He says, I've, I've made this covenant. I've heard the affliction of my people. I will act. And he talks about the future, what he's going to do to rescue his people. So what God is saying is past present and future, everything that's going to happen is going to depend on me to make it happen. It's all about who I am and about what I'm going to do. At the beginning of the month, I I preached on Exodus chapter 1 and I said, one of the things that we need to keep in mind when we read the Bible is that God is the hero of the story. Uh, Everything that we read, uh, he's the, the main character, he's the hero, everything happens because of him. He's the one that holds this whole story together. And what we see here is that that is so true. You know, we've heard a lot about Moses in chapter 2, 3, and 4. And and we're going to see him acting and doing a lot of things. But what we need to recognize is that this isn't just a story about Moses. This is a story about what God is doing through Moses. He's using Moses, but it's mostly about what God is doing in and of himself. It's amazing news. And after the events of chapter 5, this this seems to be like exactly what Moses would need to hear. Exactly what the people would need to hear to be encouraged. Uh, But unfortunately, it doesn't do the trick for them. We we keep reading verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Your outline says this, God's ways are for God's glory. It's again surprising. Things look bleak. And even after such an incredible speech that God has made, Even after this speech where God says, this is who I am, this is what I've done, this is what I will do, take courage, it it seems like nothing much has changed. You know, the people still don't believe because they're broken and crushed in their spirit. Uh, Moses, we see, he's kind of uh, reverting back to the fear that he had at first. He's saying, he's making excuses. He's saying, you know, the people won't even listen to me. How should Pharaoh listen to me? He's, He's making excuses again. And nothing else has changed about the situation. And so you might be tempted here to say, well, is God's plan actually working? Well, well, I hope by now we should recognize that even though these things are happening, it doesn't mean God's plan is failing. In fact, what's happening here is God is putting pieces in play that will show his glory even more powerfully when he acts decisively for his people. Uh, John Durham's a Bible teacher and commentator. He writes uh, about... Five different realities that that make God's glory even more pronounced when he finally acts on behalf of his people. He he says this, he lists a reluctant Moses, an unbelieving Pharaoh, a crushed and dispirited Israel, a proud and ruling Egyptian people, and a non-nation against the greatest of nations. He goes on to say all these factors will be at work showing how great God is when he acts on behalf of his people. He says this as well, what has appeared to Moses and the Israelites as a serious distortion of an already bad situation has instead been a careful preparation for what is to come. In other words, nothing here is taking God by surprise. This is actually part of his plan to fully reveal his glory. In Exodus chapter nine, verse 16, we read this. God says these words to Pharaoh. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up. To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. See, God is the one ultimately who receives the glory when his plans unfold according to his purposes. Uh, God's plan might seem like it's confusing to us. We might not have chosen this plan, but this is a plan that ultimately will show God's glory in the greatest way. Uh, God's plans are for his his glory. Now, you might have noticed that chapter 6 ends with a genealogy. Uh, you might have noticed the chapter headings there. It's the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And maybe some of you guys, guys are thinking, That's, that seems kind of random. Or maybe, you know, that kind of seems out of place to have a genealogy at this point in the story. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into it in great detail. But I want to share a couple things that we learned from this genealogy that are important to, to see, see in the rest of the story. Uh, the first is this, that once again, this genealogy reminds us that Moses and Aaron are part of a bigger story. Uh, that, that's what this genealogy does. It tells us that Moses and Aaron are actually directly descended from Israel, the man that God made these promises to. And, and so once again, and I hope we haven't missed it because it's all throughout this text, this is not a story about Moses just for the sake of a story about Moses. This is a story about what God's doing, and Moses is part of that story in just a simple part. That's the first thing that genealogy does. But the second thing is this. It lets us know that Moses and Aaron are actually in the fourth generation from when God's people came into the land of Egypt. Uh, We read that after uh, Israel has his sons. We read that Levi gives birth to Kohath, who gives birth to Amram. And then Moses and Aaron are born to Amram in the fourth generation of when God's people came into the land of Egypt. Now, the reason that this is important for us is because of something that was said in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, and we've been there a couple times in this series already, God is speaking to Abraham. Abraham's the grandfather of Israel. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, one day your descendants will be sojourners, that is people living in a land that's not theirs, and they're going to be enslaved there and treated brutally for a long time. And God says, but I'm going to rescue my people, and I'm going to bring them back to this land that I've promised to them. This is years before any of these events in the Exodus are happening. Uh, What's really cool about Genesis chapter 15, though, is how specific God gets in his promise. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, we read this. God says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And so this genealogy, which might seem at a place at first, is telling us important things. First of all, this is part of a larger story. But secondly, that this isn't something that's far off. This is the fourth generation. This is the time that God has said that he's going to act. And so God's salvation is not far away. It's actually right around the corner. After the events of chapter 5, you might start to wonder, is God actually going to do this? Is this going to be something that happens a long time from now? And what we learn here from this genealogy that seems out of place at first is that actually no, God is about to act decisively on behalf of his people. And we're about to witness God acting in incredible ways. Uh, The title I gave this sermon was that God works in mysterious ways. And and I think we can see that that's true, that God works in ways that we would never choose, that we maybe don't understand. Uh, But let's remember this week that God's ways show us our dependence on him and lead ultimately to his glory. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for the ways that you're at work. We thank you for the ways that you're at work work in the exodus and and through your son Jesus and, and the ways that you're at work in our lives today. Father, help us to recognize our dependence on you. Help us not to wait till things get terrible before we realize that you are the one that we trust. And Father, would you just receive so much glory from our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.